Hi, my name is Fritzi Horseman, and welcome to Compassion in Action. Today is part two of our Returning Citizen Roundtable discussion. Shaka Senghor had to leave for um, an appointment, so we continued our conversation with Elder Jackson III, Jason Bryant, and Robert Mosqueda. This conversation continues talking about solitary confinement and resilience, and the wisdom that these three men bring to this table is incredible. And we're gonna get on with the discussion. Welcome to the Compassion Prison Project Returning Citizen Roundtable in our show called Trauma Talks. Hi, my name is Robert Mosqueda. I have been in and out of incarceration for about 11 years. I am currently coming on my 10th year of being out of incarceration. Um, and I have dedicated myself to education, um, gang intervention, and currently I am working um, to identify and get resources to our homeless youth. Okay, I would, I would like to get back to... We can talk about resilience more if you like. <laughs> you know, so um, for me, you know, I, I was incarcerated in 1999, and at the time, there in California, there was a lot of rhetoric, particularly coming from the governor's office on down, that the only way someone with a life sentence was going to get out of prison was in a pine box. So starting out on a level four yard, there was no programming. There was uh, the bog waivers, the board of governor waiver for education had been suspended. So there was no way for people that didn't have financial support from their family to attend school. And it was just a real culture of despair. And you know, for me, the one thing, my, my first transformation, first transformational moment was when I saw my father cry for the first time. And that was the day that I was arrested. Uh, you know, he was one of those salt of the earth, like just never complain about much kind of guys. But when, when I committed my crime and they arrested me in his driveway, he was, he was a mess. And in that moment, I had this, this, just this very basic understanding that my decisions were never just about me that they impacted the people who I loved the most. So when I came to prison, even though I was in this, this atmosphere of like despair, I knew that I couldn't keep revisiting that pain on my family. And, you know, fortunately they did have some, some means to kind of finance my education. So I began going to college. Uh, and, you know, over the course of, of 20 years, I earned a bachelor's degree and two master's degrees while incarcerated. And, you know, this is, largely within an environment that says that those types of things aren't possible for people. So when we talk about resilience and we talk about perseverance, right? There's a, there's a great quote that I like a lot. Um, perseverance is the hard work we do when we're tired of the hard work we've already done, right? And uh, I mean, one thing that my co-defendant who's actually the, the executive director of the organization I work for now would say to us while we were in prison, you know, we're building programs and we're helping people get certified as counselors. You know, we started a scholarship for a young man, helped, you know, to get him a great education, raised a little over $30,000 for his future. And, and I would say to him things periodically when I would throw those pity parties where no one would show up but myself, you know, man, you know, it's just, uh, who knows what's, what's next? When are we going to get out of prison? You know, we're sitting here with life sentences. We're doing this great work, but what if, you know, what if we die in here? And, and, and then if we do get out, you know, right now we're in this one prison, we're kind of, we're kind of some big fish in a little pond, but then we're going to go out there and we'll be some little fish in this big pond, this big ocean. And he would look at me and he'd say, you know what, Jay, he'd say one thing that's for sure about this experience that we've had in prison, we will always have evidence that we can do hard shit. 
And, and it's true, right? Like we're talking about like the traumas and the thing, the, the strategies we use to just compartmentalize the pain, the, you know, the, the terrible situations that we've encountered in our lives. But at the end of the day, what one thing we definitely have is plenty of evidence that we can do hard stuff because it's hard. It ain't easy living in a six by nine with another grown human being where your, your, your kitchen and your bathroom are, are linked together on one you know, silver bullet. Right. Um, it's just, but, but when you, when you look at it from that lens, from that vantage point, like I have done hard stuff, right. Then literally the sky is the limit. And, and much like Eldra's background, like that's when, for me, at least the cage becomes this bird and like, okay, I, I have freedom here. I have freedom. So. Wow. Eldra, you want to take this? Certainly. Uh, Resilience, resilience. Uh, Shaka hit on hit it on uh, hit on it for me, and, and and it really resonated. The piece about the relationship with self. For me, you know, resilience was not something that I was in great relationship with until I was able to really be open and authentic with who I really was and embrace the parts of myself that I had been running from for so long. There are a lot of parts of me that, you know, I'd be willing to show the world and, and stand up and highlight. But those parts that I like to keep in the closet and, 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 and keep in the dark and hiding up underneath the bed are parts as well. And they deserve love. They need to be embraced. They deserve to be integrated into the whole. Because if I don't honor that, if I, when I fail to honor that, they find other ways to show up. They will be heard. They will demand and get attention. So it's about me integrating those parts and being in relationship with those parts and not trying to get rid of them or make them bad or judge them, but just recognizing where they have served. These, you know, these traumas that, that, that we're talking about and these parts of self that have showed up in a very uh, self-destructive way, they were born in a situation and a time where, where they served a purpose. They helped me survive. They helped us all survive. And so it's about honoring those parts for helping seven-year-old Eldra make it through that situation that would have broken most people. It's just about recognizing where that part of me can or cannot serve today. That part does not get to drive the car. It's still a part of the whole. He just doesn't drive the car. I'm not trying to exercise him and, and, and send him off to hell somewhere. He deserves love. He deserves honor. He deserves respect because he served in a very important part of my life. He, he, he served in a, at, a, at, a, at a stage where uh, I was in crisis and he stepped in in the lurch where I didn't know what the hell to do. And, and he went into action. I am now more equipped to deal with my life and to deal with the situations in my life. So, you know, he can take a rest now. He can go kick back on the beach inside himself. And, and, and I got this. And, and for me, that's where resilience comes in. It comes in and, and recognizing that, like Shaka said, I'm, I'm, I'm good enough. Not only am I good enough, but, you know, uh, uh, Jason just said it, you know, talking about making it through some tough shit. In certain instances, I'm the shit. I've done and been and, and survived and made it through some things, man, with some of my peers. And, and I've watched some commit suicide. I've watched some, you know, uh, uh, get into the pill line and they're still to this day doing the Thorazine shuffle because their minds broke because they couldn't handle 
what was in front of them. They couldn't handle what the reality was. So they looked for an alternate reality. So for me, resilience is about being willing to overcome that fear. And, and the fear that I'm talking about is the fear of myself. The fear that I'm talking about is the fear of looking at who I am and starting to heal those parts. That for me is what resilience looks like. And when was that moment when you made that decision? Hmm. For me, the, the, for me, the moment was uh, when I was in Corcoran, I was in the shoe. Uh, I got sent there from Solano. Me and one of my homeboys had uh, attempted to kill another inmate. And, and I was on standalone walk alone. And, and the half of the building that I was in, the other half was PHU. And I'm watching Sirhan Sirhan and Charles Manson go out to the yard with other people. And in my mind, my ego is telling me, oh, these two mother lovers are way worse than I am. Why, why are they letting them out around other people? You know, I've only done this. I've only done that. That's Charles Manson. That's Sirhan Sirhan. And, and so I started to look in the mirror and think about all of the opportunities that I had in my life and where I could have gone and started to see that I was my own worst enemy. It wasn't because Pookie snitched. It wasn't because this cat did this or this cat did that. It was because of this, the decisions that I was making continued to put me in a screwed up situation. It was what I was choosing to do. It wasn't about the homeboys. It wasn't about the guards. It wasn't about the state of California. It wasn't about uh, 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 my mama not buying me a dirt bike. It wasn't about some weirdo uh, creeping out on me when I was a kid. It was about what I chose to do with those things. It was about what I chose to do with what I was given, which takes me back to what you said about, you know, the traumas uh, that children suffer and the traumas that we've all uh, been a part of in prison, growing up in the culture, in the culture that I grew up in, you kept your mouth shut. And I didn't learn that in the streets. I learned that in, in my house. Don't take what happens in this house, outside this house, embarrassing me, boy. You get indoctrinated with that as a child. So when I was assaulted as a child, I already knew to keep my fucking mouth shut. Mm. So I didn't communicate. My parents found out about that when I was 30 something years old and we were sitting in a visiting room in Folsom. That's when they heard about what happened to their little boy, because I had already been indoctrinated into a culture of keep your mouth shut. So by the time I got to the pen and the lifestyle that I was living, that was just a way of being. Uh, my brother here talked about laying out on the yard and being hogtied and laughing about what happened. We laugh about it because we can't talk about it. Now, if I talk about what just happened, I'm a snitch. Now, what just happened to him is going to happen to me. So we're going to do anything under the sun other than talk about what just happened. Right. And that's why we're talking right now about what happened. That's why we're talking about it. And that's what needs to happen in the community all over these prisons. And that's my hope. Thank you, Eldra. Amazing. Um, Robert, tell us. Tell us about what made you shift. What's your resilience strategy? My resilience strategy was, like I talked about before, was my little girl. Um, I had two kids at that time. Um, my oldest one was five. 
Um, my youngest was six months when I went away. So she didn't grow up with me. She didn't have that collective bond with me like my five-year-old. Um, that was that shift, that, that visitation. Um, when I seen that I broke her heart, when I seen the tears and her screaming for me, um, that shattered my shell and my wheels started spinning in another direction. And, you know, I, I've, I've spoken at, you know, at paroles and PAC meetings and this and that, and I've said it in front of law enforcement that if you do something to my child, there's not enough law enforcement in the world to stop me from getting to you. I will get you. But the truth of the matter is nobody was doing anything to my kids except for me. Every time I chose to leave, every time I chose to sell dope, every time I chose to do dope, every time I chose to do everything other than be a father, I was hurting my kids. And I had to go through that realization of I'm doing this. I'm hurting my kids. And the truth is, is that they are the purest thing I've ever added to this world. No matter what good I've done in this world, and I have done some good, they are the purest thing I have ever brought into this world. These kids did not ask to come here. We brought them here. And I had that, I, I had that realization and it just really turned it away. And I made a promise to them that you will never shed another tear because of my choices. Never. You will never shed another tear because of your daddy's choices. And when I couldn't love myself, because let's be real, we didn't love each other. We didn't love us. We didn't know what self-love was. That was cosmetic. We're looking in the mirror. Yeah. Man, I look good. Yep. Loving me today. That's that cosmetic thing. I'm talking about when you're alone and you're looking in the mirror and you're seeing your reflection and you're looking eye to eye with yourself and you're looking at the depths of your soul and you're really just reliving your life. That pain that you feel, that hurt that you feel, the things that you don't talk about and you just keep stuffing. That's that. Un, uh, that, that love you don't have for yourself, that anger, that hurt that you have for yourself, I held on to my kids. And I tell people, if you don't have kids, hold on to that one person. We 99.9% .9 of the time, you have one person in your life, whether it was a teacher, an auntie, a grandma, a mom, a dad, whoever it is in your life that always seen you for the purest thing that you were, you hold on to them until you can learn how to love yourself. And that helped, that helped me to find my resilience, to help me to, to, to pick myself up when I wanted to quit. When I, and I'd look at my little girl's faces and be like, who's going to be there for them? Do I want another man to raise them? Do I want them to potentially go through what I went through? And I refuse to allow that to happen because coming out here, and I think Jason said it and Eldra said it, this game ain't easy. It's not. But the one thing that I share with people and those that are listening, and I hope they listen to this, is that the game doesn't change. The board does. The board that you play on changes. That same game, that same hustle, that same drive that you did dirt in the streets to not get caught, to make your money, to do this, to do that. All that work ethic that you did in street life, if you apply that to the next board, to doing something positive, you're unstoppable. You are unstoppable because I guarantee you the other side of the people that have never experienced this side of life, they don't have that same work ethic as you do. You have survival instincts. 
you have street instincts and you have education. You are unstoppable and that is your resilience. Turn your trauma into triumph. Amazing. One of the things we're doing at Compassion Prison Project is we're really uh, starting to question why there's solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. Um, 50% of the people that are homeless have been in solitary confinement. And so I want to talk, I would like for each of you to tell how many years you've spent in solitary, what you noticed about your, your mental states, your physical states, and um, some of the, the offenses that were done in the solitary environment, because you've all, have you all done solitary? I did 79, 79 days in the hole, but yeah. Okay, I'm going to say something just so you know this. More than 15 days is considered torture according to the Nelson Mandela rules. And what happens after seven days in solitary, your the EEG um, starts starts diminishing, your brain waves start diminishing. So you can just slough it off at 79 days, but it does damage. And so that's what we need to start talking about. It's not just 79 days, but I mean, this is serious stuff. This is serious stuff they're playing with and there's no accountability. And, uh, and there's gotta be accountability to put somebody in that kind of situation. There should be a trial because otherwise, otherwise we're, creating, we're creating more damage in our, in our communities and in our society. And so mm-hmm. they gotta start knowing that their prison is creating crime. Prison is creating recidivism. It's mm-hmm. not the people now. The people who did the crime when they came in, that's one thing, but coming out, that's on us. That's on us. So um, it may not be that much, Jason, but it's still something. So uh, let's start with Robert and uh, we'll just go around. Um, you know, um, isolation, uh, going to the whole solitary. Um, that's where I first landed right when I got to reception. Right from reception, I was put into ADSEG solitary confinement um, because I was a security concern. Um, It's amazing at how much the body can take, the mental can take, you learn to self-isolate. I remember enjoying it, it it would get to the point initially, you know, you want it, you want to contact, you're at the window, you're looking at this, you're trying to see, you know, what movement's going on, you know, what's, you know, the conversations that are going on, fishing underneath the door, um, to the point where you become at peace with that six by nine. It becomes your whole um, safety net, you know. I remember they wanted to bring me a... Uh, 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 a celly and I have to interview him at the door. No, you ain't coming in. And I would tell the guards, you bring him in. You gonna take him out. I promise you. And I became my own beast. And I enjoyed that power. It was the power that they were giving me. You couldn't bring anybody in my cell without my permission. And they would bring him to the door, bring him up to the glass for me to interview him. Now, I'm away from my door, you know, and I remember, I think uh, Elder was saying it or, or uh, maybe it was Jay, you know, those standalones, 
you know, being walked out to the yard. And I remember that bravado, you know, I'm thinking in my head, I made it. Look at me. I'm being put out into a cage. And I'm thinking, excuse my language, I'm thinking this is the shit. Well, I made it. What They got me in cuffs. They, I got to be escorted. I'm going to the cage by myself. And I'm thinking, this is like me in Las Vegas sitting in a suite right now. You know, that's the warpness of my mind. That's, you know, how distorted we think our value is, is that that's achieving something. That's achieving status right there, that we've done this type of time. And, you know, uh, what I've learned was it was a fallacy. You know, our, our organizations that run these prisons that say there's segregation, you can't talk to this person, you can't talk to this person, you can't dine with him, you can't take this, you can't take that. I've seen it in solitary confinement, sharing food, sharing a book, sharing this, sharing that. It was a fallacy. And seeing some of those revelations of um, indoctrinations uh, of, of things, um, then you start to question what is, what is really real anymore. And, you know, um, how to re-socialize again, um, because that's what isolation really takes you away from, at least for me, is how do I re-socialize again? It took me a long time, a very long time to learn how to re-socialize. How long? In all honesty, I got out in 2011. I didn't really learn how to re-socialize again, and I still haven't. I'm good at going to work. I'm good at doing certain things, but I still do time in my house. Don't get me wrong. I go on trips and I do little things, but my comfort zone is my house. I can do time in there. I can sit in there and I can be fine. I remember when I first got out, just really quick, we still had pay phones. They weren't all gone yet, but I remember I was walking down the street. I was I was only out two weeks. And um, can, we, can you hold it? Because uh, Jason has to leave, and then we'll come back to you. I'm so, I'm I lost time again. I'm sorry, Jason. But go ahead. Tell us how long you've been and what your experiences were, if you can. Sure. Well, so um, uh, in 2007, I served 79 days in solitary in the hole in Adseg at the time. Uh, I was put there for having an illegal cell phone and that's really not an ad segable offense. That's um, according to their rules, that's actually um, contraband. It's a, it's a lesser write-up, however wrong it is and however dangerous they may be. Uh, but they were using that as a way to, they're using the whole or a segregation as a way to strip people of their worker status and just punish them for not following the rules. And for me, the, the most, um, uh, I remember that it was about three weeks in. I was about three weeks in when I started talking to myself. And like looking back, I think about it like, oh, it's funny. It's funny. Like I was talking, having conversations with myself. But the reality was I was so lonely. Like, like we're social creatures. And, and we're meant to be in community with people. And, and I was isolated, like for real isolated. Like, I mean, like the lights would come on at like five o'clock in the morning and they'd slide a tray in and then that was it. And then it was just me alone. You know, every, every two or three days, I might be lucky to go out to a dog kennel 
where there were other people in other dog kennels, but there's no real interaction. It was like, there's a machine out there because of the, you know, the prison politics. It was like, okay, it's, it's the woodpiles turn to do their, their machine and the brothers are doing theirs. And then the, the Hispanics are doing theirs, but there's not real social interaction. It's like, we're working out and we're doing it like a military type thing. And then you go back to your cell and, and it's lonely. And it's like, what the heck? So, uh, you know, it was, it was 79 days. I say, I, I say that it, it was a short amount of time compared to some of the stretches that I know people have done, especially in the shoes. I know people who've done 20, 30 years in shoe. It's crazy, ridiculous amounts of time uh, to be isolated like that. But, but it was, it was definitely one of the loneliest times of my life, those 79 days. And when you got back to society, what happened? Like, what was your transition like? When I got back into the general population. So it was, it was, a. Uh, it was strange. I, like literally from ADSEG, <clears throat> I transferred to another institution. That's when I transferred to CTF. I, I was coming from Old Folsom and I went to CTF and it was just strange. I mean, I was, I was in reception getting processed in and it was, it was weird not being handcuffed because anytime I went to the shower, went to the, to the, to the yard, I had been handcuffed for the last 80, 79 days everywhere I went. And then it's like, okay, well, your handcuffs are off you and you can walk around, you know, with you know, relative freedom. And it just, it felt awkward. It felt strange. It was parallel to my experience. The first time I went on a family visit, which they gave us back our family visits around 2017. And the first time I got into a van without restraints on I'm like, what the heck I'm in a car and I don't have leg irons on. This is, this is weird. It was weird. And I, I didn't anticipate the weirdness, but it was very strange to be in a car without leg restraints and, and, and handcuffs on. I mean, being treated almost like a human. What a concept. Oh. Almost. Almost. Okay, Jason. Uh, anything thank else you, you want to say? I, I just want to say thank you. It's been it's been a real honor to be a part of this call and, and to share my experiences with you, gentlemen, and 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 Fritzy, and and to hear your stories. It's it's been really powerful. Um, I think you you have my my email. Please feel free to to contact me, and 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 you know, I look forward to supporting you guys in your work, and hopefully you'll support us in ours as well. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. Okay, Robert, we're gonna get back to you now, finish up your story and then we get to, to Elder and then we'll get going. And I'm sorry guys for going so long. It's okay. Um, you know, the, the transition home, um, like I was saying, so you, you triggered me on something when you were talking to Jason, what was it like to come home? I remember first coming home to Stockton and my sister wanted to take me to the mall. And at that time, there's a lot of movement in the malls and I remember my anxiety through the roof. I had my back to the wall. I'm like, I lasted less than five minutes. You need to get me out of here. You need to get me out of here now. Let's go. Um, and, um, you know, parole had put me in a, um, a halfway house. A, uh, they put me into a behavioral modification program. Um, and I had a walk from this house to the bus stop. And I'm like, and I remember talking to the parole agent. I'm like, you know who I am, right? You're putting me in the wrong neighborhood. And you want me to walk from here to here? Oh, y'all set me up. And, you know, you're going to have to find a way. And I remember um, I liked myself. I'm now living in this house that I have to live around other men in that type of population like we're all integrated and I didn't like it I liked myself I liked my privacy I liked 
being able to know that door is shut. And um, I remember I lasted about two weeks and I'm walking down the street and I call my sister from a payphone, um, my older sister. And I'm telling her, I, I can't do this. I'm ready to quit. I want to go back. I want to go back. And, you know, um, prison is, is traumatic. And, and there's a lot of things that happen in there, but there's, there's some things that make prison very easy. You don't have to pay rent. You have a roof over your head. You have a radio if you're privileged. You have a TV if you're privileged to have one. You have the ability to go to canteen. You got hustle. You got this. You got that. I had everything, almost everything I needed. Except when I was out in this world, I was always afraid. And um, it was getting through it, though. You know, um, the one thing that I that I share about that was in order for me to get past it, I had to go through it. I had to, I had to face those fears and I had to start believing in myself. But, the, you know, just being in solitary, it, it really changed me to where I wanted self-isolation. Like Jason said, we are naturally socializing creatures where it took me to a place that I didn't want to socialize with anybody. And even to this day, my circle is very small. Very, very small. That's solitary. That's okay, Elder. Please uh, give us a little more. I hope you can stand by to listen to Elder's story, and we'll we'll wrap it up. Uh, solitary. Uh, I, I I did about four years total in solitary. Uh, the longest I ever did in any one stretch was uh, two years, and. Uh, I, I was somebody that was, again, you know, I, I had a military background, so I had a militant stance towards solitary confinement. And it was, you know, the government and the state of California, they were the enemy. And, and there was a lot of propaganda and paraphernalia going around about what solitary was and, 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 and the sensory deprivation programs and how they had taken uh, lessons learned in the Vietnam War era. POW camps and built Florence, Colorado and took that model and built Pelican Bay Shoe and designed all of these ad seg uh, programs. So for me, it was more about, uh, you're not gonna break me. It was a battle of will. So I took it as a challenge. And so it was a very militant uh, activity for me. And, 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 and it was always, it was a, a warlike mentality it was preparing for war out on the main line. There was always this, this militaristic sort of thing, preparing not just for the next melee or riot, but preparing for the whole to be mentally ready, to be physically ready. Because when you get back there, shit is on another level. Because at that time they were sending cats out to the yard for uh, uh, cockfights and different things like that. I can remember one time being in, in the hole in Corcoran and, and getting escorted back to the cell and, and luckily for me, I'm rail thin, always have be, hopefully always will be. So the guard is walking. He's on the outside. We're up on the second tier. He's on the outside along the rail. He's got me in next to the doors. And you got these little nine millimeter size holes in the doors. And as we're walking, I see this cat's shadow. He's got the door. He's, the, the lights are off, but I see a shadow in the crack of the door. I know what's up with him. And uh, as we get up to him, 
he hits the door. Spear comes out. I, I see him when he makes the move. And I kind of like do the bump with the officer, get over here on him. Dude's hand hits the uh, uh, hits the door. He misses me. Me and the officer, we both look. We see it. We both just keep on walking. This cat's got a spear in his cell. I know it. The cop knows it. We all know it. And we just keep right on walking. See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. And that's just the way it is. You bite into that stuff. That is the culture. Again, it goes back to the silence. And, 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 and I normalize, I was able to normalize and rationalize. This is just what it is. This is just how it is. I can remember being in the hole in the, in the middle of summer and the only units that had air conditioning were the mental health units. So the, 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 the J-Cats had air conditioning. I'm in the hole. We don't have air conditioning. So I developed a routine to be able to regulate my body. I would wait until 11, 12 o'clock after that, that uh, uh, in between the first count for first watch and their second watch, knock down three, four, 500 burpees, get butt naked, take a bird bath. So I could run my temperature way, way up. And then it would come down and I could tolerate the heat. So I would adapt and come up with different things like, and then sleep with my bare feet on the cold steel toilet so I could put myself to sleep. These are the sorts of things I, I used to develop in my brain in order to survive. So isolation for me was really about survival and creating mental constructs to be able, you know, once again, based on my trauma, to be able to defeat my enemy. And the enemy that I, you know, uh, chose at that time was the government and this system. Amazing. Talk about resilience. <laughs> and, and coming home, what was that like? I mean, did, do you think solitary had an effect on how you reintegrated? Uh, I'm certain that solitary had an effect on how I reintegrated and incarceration period. You know, I'm still, you know, here now, six years out adjusting and probably will be until the day I die. I've, I've, you know, had the opportunity to fly around the world since I've been home, you know, going to Amsterdam and, and, and going all across this country. And, and I'm able to look at myself and laugh about the institutionalization and how it shows up sitting in a restaurant, you know, up 40 stories above downtown and the restaurant is spinning around and they're serving all sorts of stuff that I can't even pronounce. And, 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 and the waiter or the waitress comes and, and, and is serving somebody who's sitting at the table with us and reach across to go give them something. And the first thing that pops in my mind is this stupid motherfucker, don't you know that'll get you stabbed in prison for reaching over my shit like this? This is what's going on in my mind. And I'm sitting here with CEOs and business people and, 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 and things like that. But that shit is there. The difference today is, is that I'm able to manage it. I don't act on it, but, I, but it's there. I see it. I recognize it. It's in there embedded deep because I was that old so much longer than I've been this. Yes, but that's childhood trauma too, right? That's there too. Like you said, that seven-year-old is still there. Yeah. But that's the thing, that's the key is to learn to manage these impulses. But if you don't have access to here, you don't have, you don't have a, a, a chance. All right, you guys, all right, anything else you wanna say before we wrap today up? But there's gonna be more, I can tell this, this is vibrant. No, ma'am, um, 
this is an absolute blessing. Um, I'm available. Um, please let me know. Um, Elder, thank you for sharing your story and everybody else that was on here. Absolutely amazing. Um, you know, it's real inspiration to see those where they've what they've gone through, where they've come from and where they're at now. Um, you know, it really does help empower those that are traveling the same footsteps that we have, that um, they can see success, um, that it is obtainable and that it is reachable no matter what mistakes you've made in life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Truly. Truly. I want to get the work. Elder was in this film called The Work, and I want to get that film and put it in prison. Has it been seen in prison? Uh, I don't know if it's, I know they've showed it in Folsom because it was filmed there. I don't know if it's been anywhere else. Yeah, I think this needs to be part of it. And, and, and Shaka's interview with Oprah and Jason was on television with Lisa Ling. I don't know if you know that. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, and Robert, when you're on television, let us know. We'll put you in there too. Well, <laughs> uh, I appreciate it. I have a, I do have a couple of small things. Um, I was a part of a documentary called Gang Love. Perfect. Um, it's on YouTube. It's called Gang Love. Um, Adam Yabara actually did it. Um, and then I actually did a clip with uh, ABC 10. Um, news, uh, Office of Violence Prevention. Um, I was on there talking about my story as well, um, just kind of where I came from, where I got to. Um, and I think they've, I forget how they titled it, but you know, one uh, something along the sides of one man's journey to um, never go to jail again or, you know, giving back to the community, something along those lines. So I have been fortunate to, to be in those types of arenas, luckily to share some stories. Look, we all, everyone. Last thought that I would have for anybody who uh, may have the opportunity to uh, listen to this conversation is uh, believe in yourself, invest in yourself. Forget what everybody else is talking about. Be willing to step out on that ledge, be a trendsetter, be a man, be a woman and show everybody else around you how to do it because they want to be able to do it. They just don't know how. Sure. So be the model. Great. Um, for me, uh, what I would want to leave people with is something my father told me before he passed. I was, uh, I was actually on a visit with him and I was kind of whining. I was in my second year of incarceration and I was telling him, you know, I got 24 more years until they're going to think about letting me out. And he looked at me and he was just real serious. And he said, look, son, he said, I, and he said, I want you to look at me. He said, I want you to know that it doesn't matter if it's 24 years, 24 months, 24 weeks, or 24 days. The only thing you have is this moment. That's it. So make the very most of this moment every day, every moment of your life. And that's my encouragement for people who are incarcerated. Make the most out of these moments because that's all we really have. There's, there's always something positive and productive for you to throw yourself into, to learn about yourself, to add value to the community there and beyond. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. Robert. Um, you know what I would hope everybody would get, and I'm going to leave it with what a lifer told me. Um, what he got at me is, Robert, if you always do what you've always done, you're always going to get what you've always got. Change it. Change it. And he helped me realize you are the master of you. Nobody is the master of you but you. 
You're in control of your decisions. You are in control of your emotions. Do not give anybody that power over you. Be the master of you. And these things are life lessons, not a life sentence. So set yourself free. And with that, we conclude our roundtable for Trauma Talks. Thank you all for participating. I hope you enjoyed this two-part series of the Returning Citizen Roundtable discussion about childhood trauma, solitary resilience, and um, po the possibility for the men once they've returned home from prison. If you've enjoyed this podcast and YouTube special, please like, subscribe, and share this episode. And please go to our website at CompassionPrisonProject.org and check out Step Inside the Circle, the film that we did at Lancaster State Prison. I'll see you next time.